Hi, Gary Zacharias here. Welcome to the Apologist Bookshelf. I wanted to try something a little different this time. It's a book by James Emery White called Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. And then the subtitle is Uncommon Answers to Common Questions. So, uh, you know, normally we do things that are uh, in-depth, Christian apologetics of one kind or another. And I thought this might be interesting to share a book that actually would be a book you would give to a a non-Christian, somebody who's curious about it, maybe. On the back, Lee Strobel says this, I wish this book had been around when I was an atheist and started to seek God. It's a no-nonsense, practical, and insightful guide that will help all those on a quest for spiritual truth. If you're investigating whether there's any substance to the Christian faith, you must read this important book. So, um, I like James and Marie White. I've read several of his books. He was a former president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, He's written several books. One's called The Rise of the Nuns, uh, Meet Generation Z, Rethinking the Church. He's got one called The Church in an Age of Crisis. He's the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church, which is back in Charlotte, North Carolina. So here are the chapters that he deals. Remember, this is a book that would be for non-Christians. But frankly, I think we all need to get kind of a brush up on uh, basic theological issues. So the chapters are things like this, the God who is there or not, second chapter, but what kind of God, third chapter, Jesus 101, fourth uh, chapter is the message, then the book, then the church, unchristians, and then next steps. So uh, a pretty clever book. And I wanted to share one chapter with you. It's uh, the fourth chapter talking about the book. And so he's, uh, he's going to focus on the Bible because a lot of people have strange ideas or they don't know anything about the Bible. And he's going to focus on four things in this chapter. First is he wants to clear up what is the Bible. And he says it's a library. He says it's not one book, a collection of books, 66 books. And most of us knew that. So he's starting pretty basic. And then he says the second big headline is that this library of books falls into two parts called Testaments. He says that just means agreement or covenant. So he said, what what divides the Old Testament to the New Testament? He says it's Jesus. So the Bible is telling one story, but it's broken into two parts of these 66 books. So we've got the first thing is the Bible is not just um, a single book. It's a library. And then he says you have two parts to it. The third headline, he says, is important is that the Bible is sacred. People treat it seriously. Now, he says we accept the Old Testament as scripture because Jesus did. And he gives several different examples of places where Jesus talks about Moses and David and things in the Old Testament. So he says uh, we we buy into the Old Testament as scripture because Jesus did. And he says when it comes to the New Testament, he said we have apostles. That says uh, those are the ones that have been sent. And he said they received a unique commission from Jesus. And it's never been repeated. <clears throat> so when you have people today talking about new books of the Bible and all, um, he said, no, that was back then. They assumed a prophetic role, and they spoke God's word to the people. They were not self-appointed. And so they took the teachings of Jesus and brought them to others. And he said uh, it was pretty simple. And whether you would consider a book to be part of Scripture when it came to the New Testament, it was a simple question. Was it written by? or based on the teachings of Jesus or maybe one of his apostles. 
So he says, these are not books that the church sat around and chose. He says it was, they were commissioned. These people that wrote the New Testament were commissioned by Jesus and based on the teachings of Jesus. <clears throat> he says, yeah, but he said, you know, there's those lost books that we always hear about, like the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Mary Magdalene. But he said, they were understood to be forgeries. They were false in their information, and most of them were written hundreds of years later, after the time that their alleged authors lived. And what they claimed went against what was there from the very beginning about Christianity from, from the time of Jesus. Okay, so then he says, well, all right, so we've got this Bible. He says, why so many translations? And he says, well, the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek, basically just two languages. And he says, yeah, but, but why so many different translations? He says, well, it's pretty simple. Language changes so much. He says, gay used to mean happy. Now it's changed. Wicked used to be bad. Now it's something good. Spam used to be canned can meat, he says, or something like meat. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know how, what he thinks about that. Anyway, so he gives some examples. He says, when the Bible got translated in the 1600s, you know, you have the King James Bible. And he said they were employing King James English, but he said there's nothing magical or holy about that. We don't talk in King James English today. So he said these modern translations are trying to be made for ease of reading and understanding as language changes. Now he gets to his fourth and final headline. So remember the headlines one more time. Let's go back on those. So first is the Bible is actually a library. He says the second headline is that it's two parts two testaments. Third one is the Bible is sacred. We think it's the words of God. And uh, fourth one is the inspiration of the Bible. And he says it means God breathed, that people wrote, but it was as they were moved by God. All right, next section. What about interpretations? That's where it gets sticky, right? Everybody says, well, that's just your interpretation, as if the Bible is just a reader's opinion, completely subjective. But he said, but 99% of the Bible doesn't take any heavy lifting when it comes to interpretation. He says, well, so why is it that so many claim that the Bible is difficult to understand? Well, it's not because um, they don't understand what it says. They don't like the implications of it. He says, all of a sudden you think it's hard to understand when you don't want to do it, <laughs> which I think is a really good point. He says, yeah, but there are parts of the Bible that are hard, hard to understand. And he said, uh, but truth can be disturbing, but it's life-changing. So, you know, you can, maybe you need some background information, and people might disagree, but he says, on the essential teachings and issues, there's not much room for confusion. What about the Bible's textual credibility? So is it reliable? And he says, well, we have tons and tons of documents, and the more documents you have, the more manuscripts, back in the days when they were handwriting these things, the more manuscripts you have, the closer you can recreate what the original was. He says well, there are over 5,000 handwritten manuscripts. And uh, he says, well, what about the historical credibility of the Bible? You know, did it really happen? But he said a lot of the New Testament writers claimed to be eyewitnesses. He quotes Sir William Ramsey of Oxford. He was one of the greatest archaeologists who ever lived. Now he says um, Ramsey decided after reading the Bible that the writers of the Bible were historians of the first rank who should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. In fact, 
He was so impressed with the archaeological evidence that he eventually became a Christian. Pretty powerful, huh? And he gives a lot of examples here of places like Sodom and Gomorrah, or the manuscripts talk about David, and he tells you now they found references to David, the Hittites, uh, on and on and on. So I won't spend the time on that. I've done a special talk just on the uh, reliability of the Old Testament. You can go to my website, apologeticsforlife.org, and you can find it there. Um, he says there's never been an archaeological discovery that's ever refuted a single biblical claim. In fact, he quotes a Jewish archaeological expert, Dr. Nelson Gluck, who said, quote, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. All right, so he continues. It's a long chapter, but a lot of good stuff here. He says, but, you know, was Jesus really the Messiah? Because that's what they say in the New Testament. And he talks about the prophecies of the Messiah and how the odds are that one person who could fulfill all of those is just overwhelming. It's, it, it's got to be inspired, he says. What about, what about uh, contradictions? That's another big area, right? People say, well, there's a lot of contradictions in there. He says, well, let's, let's take one. Here's an example. In Mark's account of the death of Jesus, there's a focus on his agony and Luke's account, there's a focus on Jesus' concern for his mother, but that's not a contradiction. He could have been in agony and concerned for his mother. Well, what about this one? In Matthew's account, it says that Peter's going to deny Jesus before the cock crows. In Mark's account, it says that Peter will deny Jesus before the cock crows twice. That's not a contradiction. Peter did deny Jesus before the cock crowed. Mark just says, well, the cock's not going to crow just once, but twice. That's not a scandal, as he says. He says also there's no conflict uh, between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. That's what uh, Richard Dawkins has gotten into big time. And so he talks about Old Testament laws. He said, well, he said there are timeless ethical, moral, and theological principles in the Old Testament, but some laws no longer have validity because they were completely fulfilled in Christ. And he takes the eye for an eye as an example. In the Old Testament, it says, quote, this is Exodus 21, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye, there's that phrase, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. In the New Testament, Jesus says, you have heard it said, the eye for an eye. But I say, do not resist an evil person. That's Matthew 5. So as White says, so, so which is it? Is it an eye for an eye? That's the Old Testament. Or is it turn the other cheek? as Jesus came up with in the New Testament. And he says the answer is yes. The eye for an eye passage in Exodus was all about whether you could come up with a private vendetta and retaliate when you got wrong. And the answer was no. That was for the judges to decide. In other words, the eye for an eye was compensation that was in direct proportion to the crime. So you're, you're supposed to match the damages inflicted and no more. Now, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus gave the fulfillment, saying, you've heard the eye for an eye, but I tell you to go further, don't retaliate at all. So this kind of fulfillment, all through Jesus' teaching, the letter of the law was met in Jesus' time with a greater, more challenging spirit of the law that Jesus came up with. Another section of the book talks about the Bible and science. And he says the Bible doesn't pretend to be a textbook on science. I would say amen to that. 
He says, well, what about the book of Genesis? So it says basically two things. God created, he did it, and it was good. That's it. He says, Genesis doesn't tell us how God did it. Now he said, you know, people that read Genesis through a Greek or Latin lens read that God created everything in six days, and they interpret that to be a succession of 24-hour solar days. That makes the earth really, really young when they calculate it all out. That's called the young earth creation theory. But he says, you know, there are many people who read the Bible and interact with science this way. He says there are. He said, not many, but some. But he said the vast majority of Christians say that in no way, shape, or form does reading the Bible make you hold to that view. Now, he, in fact, he goes on, he says the mention of seven days was just an ancient poetic way of talking about the fact that God did it. So he's kind of um, <laughs> opening up a can of worms there when it comes to the age of the earth because so many Christians get dogmatic about that. And he's saying, you ought to read the Bible literally, but that's to read it the way it was intended to be read. You need to take the way that it was written in accordance with the genre, the way it's language uh, was, uh, the way it was composed in the language, the time which it was written. So he said, if you take Genesis 1 and 2 literally, as they're actually written, he said, you have to read them as poetic descriptions. That was their genre. They weren't trying to be scientific. He said, how could God have intended to inspire the writer to convey scientific precision about literal 24-hour solar days when, according to the text, the sun and the moon weren't even created until the fourth day? You couldn't have a 24-hour solar day until the fourth day. There's nothing in existence that was solar. So he says, uh, that's his view, of course, and people are split on that. And then on the seventh day, it says God rested. He says, well, that's poetic figurative language. Now he, he brings out the idea that the original Hebrew language for day is the word yom. And he said it can be 24 hours, but it can mean a segment of time. It can be weeks, a year, several years, an age, even an era. He said we do that even today when we use the word day. We'll say, oh, our grandfather's day or days gone by. So he said the use of that word day in Genesis could have stood for any period of time, maybe even indefinite periods. Well, the last section here, he talks about miracles, the Bible and miracles. He says, it's true, the Bible does have supernatural events. And some would say, well, wait a minute. You, you can't just have a disruption of these physical laws in the universe. Miracles are impossible. And he said, well, they are impossible, but it's not a particularly large intellectual dilemma, not if there's a God, not if there's a God. If you admit, he says, at least to the possibility of God, then miracles aren't an issue. A miracle is a suspension of the physical laws of the universe. And he ends the chapter here by saying miracles just mean there's something, and more specifically, someone, capital S, bigger than science. So he says that's a bit about the Bible. He says, but as much as Christians might be called people of the book, Jesus didn't come to just set up some authoritative writings as a religious canon. He said he came to fulfill God's redemptive plan, and then he continues with that in the next chapter. So, again, I'm, I'm getting the information today, a book I pulled off the shelf called Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians, James Emery White. And I hope you got a feeling just in these last few minutes of how simple it is, how easy it, it is to read and again, it's actually aimed at the non-Christian uh, individual who might be curious about Christianity. And uh, this is a good place to start. It's not that long. Let's see here. It's uh, 229 pages, counting the notes. 
as far as his actual writing, it's about 219 pages. Uh, things like, is there a God? Why do life, death, and resurrection of Jesus matter? Why is there so much suffering? Why do Christians think there's only one way to know God? How do I reconcile the Bible's picture of Christ's followers with the actual Christians I know who have disappointed me? So he, he covers things like the LGBTQ community, social justice, all sorts of things. So if somebody's skeptical of Christianity that you know about, you might want to check on this book. One last time, James Emery White, book called Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. Well, thanks and uh, appreciate you listening in.